Good evening. Would you please stand uh, for the call to worship, which is printed in your bulletin? Rend your hearts and not your garments, says the Lord. Return to the Lord your God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? He has shown us what is good, and what does the Lord require of us but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God?
may be seated. Would you now join me in the responsive prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin? My sisters and brothers, Christ shows us his love by becoming a humble servant. Let us draw near to God and confess our sin in the truth of God's Spirit. Most merciful God, we, your church, confess that often our spirit has not been that of Christ, where we have failed to love one another as he loves us, where we have pledged loyalty to him with our lips and then betrayed, deserted, or denied him. Forgive us, we pray. By your spirit, make us faithful in every time of trial. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. But Christ suffered and died for us, was raised from the dead and ascended on high for us, and continues to intercede for us. Believe the good news. If you have confessed your sins in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. The Old Testament scripture reading is Exodus 12, verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, They must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, 
I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This is the word of the Lord. Our second scripture lesson this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord.
Please remain standing for the gospel reading, which is the gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, and then 31 through 38. Hear the word of our Lord. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to uh, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Peter, who said to them, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example of what you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, and nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And a little later, when Judas Iscariot had gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will be glorified, or God will glorify the Son in himself, and he will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only for a little while longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
Jacques Rousseau was a court preacher in 17th century France. He once preached a sermon talking about the difference between the rich and the poor in the world and in the church. Using Jesus' words that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, Bousquet's sermon was based on these three statements. He said, first of all, in the world, the rich have every advantage and are given the first place. In the kingdom of Christ, the primacy is with the poor. Second, in the world, the poor are subject to the rich and seem born only to serve them. Whereas in the Holy Church, there is no entrance for the rich except on the condition that they serve the poor. And third, in the world, favors and privileges are for the rich and powerful, and the poor have no share unless through the protection of the rich. But in Christ's church, favors and blessings are for the poor, and the rich have no privilege unless they use their means for the poor. It seems to me as I read this among many things that he's saying in this very interesting sermon, is that the king in the kingdom of God, everything is turned upside down. Those who have exist for those who have not. Those whose lives are made easier by those whose lives are harder now find that in the kingdom, the only use for what they have is to serve those who would normally in the world serve them. And I found his analysis fascinating, very convicting, but fascinating. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it isn't just about rich and poor or about the powerful and the weak. It's about every element of life. In the kingdom, everything we have, everything that we count as a blessing, everything that we see as valuable, significant, worthwhile, important, All of it is ultimately intended as a means of serving Christ by serving others. And particularly, others that we wouldn't naturally think of serving. Whatever we have, wealth, power, possessions, significance, gifts, abilities, education, opportunities, influence, all of it. If we aren't using it to serve, then we aren't using it the way God intends. Now, our natural inclination in hearing all of this is to step back and and to ask ourselves, is that really true? It's so counterintuitive to everything that we've ever been taught, even by the church. We immediately raise red flags and we question and we start looking for loopholes which is why our gathering together tonight is so important and so significant. Once we see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords take up a towel and a wash basin and wash the stinking, dirty feet of his disciples, every argument we might conjecture disintegrates. If the Lord of all uses all that is rightfully his to serve and ultimately to die, why would we think God's expectations would be any different for you and me? 
And just in case we have any doubts, Jesus, who has more right than anyone to be treated in the highest way, says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And yet something in us still wants to believe that we can know Christ and be connected to Christ and still think that our lives are about being served. I have to admit, I'm continually looking for ways around this truth. I look for exceptions. I look for loopholes. I am good at at justifying the self-serving decisions that I make virtually every day. I deserve it. That's for people who have lots of power or lots of wealth. That's awfully radical. Surely Jesus isn't looking for something quite that radical, right? And all the while, the image of towel and basin stare back at me, convicting me, challenging me, calling me. And what we have to understand is that this call to radical servant discipleship is rooted not in our goodness, but in the Father's love. John tells us in verse 3 here in chapter 13, Jesus knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew that his relationship with the Father was as it should be. That he was loved by the Father. That he was the beloved of the Father. And John says, so he got up from the meal and he began to wash the disciples' feet. His service is the direct result of confidence in the Father's love. Our service will be the direct result of confidence in the Father's love. Brenda Manning tells of being on a retreat of silence and solitude when he sensed God saying to him, you have no idea how much I love you. You have no idea how much I love you. And when I read that, I am reminded once again that this is God's ultimate message for us because it's our greatest need. It's the foundation of everything that God wants us to be. Everything we will ever be hinges on growing and deepening our understanding of how much God loves us. And everything in this world around us is continually battering us with messages that God's love is not what he says it is. That God's love is conditional. That God's love is limited. That God's love love hinges on how good we are. But Jesus tells us again and again and again, you have no idea how much God loves you. And only when we begin to understand the unfathomable depths of God's love for us, are we then free to love others, especially the people we wouldn't normally choose to love and serve. 
We can give away love in serving others because we know God's love for us never runs out. We can be extravagant with our limited love because God is eternally extravagant with his unlimited love. And that brings us back to the table. At this table, bread and wine become beacons of divine love and divine service. Bread and wine fill us with gratitude for the love of God in Christ and inspire us to be people of service in the name of Christ. When we know how much God loves us, we don't have to spend our lives attempting to convince and force and manipulate people into loving us and serving us. We can freely and joyfully spend our lives serving others. And it's then we begin to understand the towels and basins for the least likely. It's not an exception, but the norm for God's kingdom and for God's people. We begin to understand that this is what loved kingdom people do. Amen.
Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Blessed are you, Lord our God, sovereign of the universe. You created the heavens and the earth and saw that it was good. From the earth you bring forth bread and create the fruit of the vine. You formed us in your own image, delivered us from captivity, fed us manna in the wilderness, made covenant with us, and set before us the way of life. Therefore, with your people in all ages and the whole company of heaven, we join in the song of unending praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Most holy and merciful God, Time and again, we turned aside from your way and abused your gifts. Yet you gave us the crowning gift in your Son, Jesus Christ. Emptying himself that our joy might be full, he fed the hungry, healed the afflicted, ate with the scorned and forgotten, washed his disciples' feet, and gave a holy meal as the pledge of his abiding presence. On the night he gave himself up for us, at table with those who would desert him and deny him, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Therefore, recalling your son's death and resurrection, his ascension and his abiding presence through your Holy Spirit. We ask you to accept this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us as a living and holy surrender of ourselves. Send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this wine, we may know the presence of the living Christ, be renewed as his body and transformed into his likeness, faithfully serve him in the world, and look forward to his coming in final victory. Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor And glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen.
This evening, we're going to receive communion around the altar rail. I'm going to ask you to to come, not in any particular uh, form, uh, but just to come as you're ready to come. And when the altar is full, we will serve those who are here. When uh, people get up and leave, others can come and take their place. Feel free to stay as long as you would like to pray, to meditate, to contemplate this night. The, the bread will be uh, distributed to you as well as a cup. And uh, feel free to eat and drink at your own pace. We will not do it together as a group, but just as you are ready to do so. As I always do when we take communion, I want to mention that we practice open communion here at the Wesleyan Church. Maybe the first time you've worshipped here, but if you come tonight with your heart open to God, with a desire to live in the love and the grace of God and to live in fellowship with others, then please come. Receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father.
it has always been a, a practice of the church to, to prepare in every way possible for the highest, holiest feast day of the year, Easter. In the Middle Ages, uh, as the churches were built more elaborately and, and uh, the, there were the facilities that people came to worship, uh, the Christians wanted to make the church as clean and as pure as possible for this great Easter celebration. And so they would gather together in the week leading up to Easter and clean every corner. As is the case with most of us, when you do that deep cleaning, you move things. You pull the chair out from the wall and you clean behind it and the couch and underneath. And and you get to places that you might otherwise not think about cleaning. And so as as the church was being cleaned in the deepest way, things were moved and pushed aside and carried out. And at some point it hit the Christians that this was an amazing symbolism of this night, the, the, the starkness, the bareness of the church as it was being cleaned seems so apropos as a symbol for the cross and for all that takes place on the cross and the death of Christ and, and the, the, the desolation of that moment and of that day and of the days that follow. And out of that that imagery came a practice that is known as the stripping of the church. And tonight we are going to follow this ancient practice of removing from the church all of the things of color and textiles and and anything that we can in order to, to symbolize the bleakness and the stark reality of Christ's passion and death. Jesus went forth with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lantern and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word which he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Judean authorities seized Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the religious authorities that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. As this disciple was known to the high priest, he entered the court of the high priest along with Jesus, while Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman who guarded at the gate said to Peter, "'Are not you also one of this man's disciples?' He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jewish people come together. I have said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing by, standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest.
Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, Are not you also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a kinsman of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the cock crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have handed him over. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The religious authorities said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. This was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by what death he was to die. Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world... My servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the religious authorities, but my kingship is not from the world. Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After Pilate had said this, he went to the religious authorities again and told them, I find no crime in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Will you, have you, will you have me release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber.
Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no crime in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no crime in him. The religious authorities answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard these words, he was the more afraid. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Upon this, Pilate sought to release him, but the religious authorities cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour. He said to the religious authorities, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. They handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Judeans read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The Jewish chief priests then said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but 
This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was without seam, woven from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They parted my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did this. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother... And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there, so they put a sponge full of the vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the Passover, since it was the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the religious authorities asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. 
that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the religious authorities, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had at first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, where no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, As the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Silence, meditation, and peace. Amen. 